Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Walking the Unnamed Path. I am one of your co-hosts, Michael Graywolf, and joining me tonight is my fabulous co-conspirator co-host, uh, Chris Ripple. Hey. Hey, hi. Hello, hello. <laughs> Uh, Chase Powers, unfortunately, could not be with us tonight, uh, but he's with us in spirit. Uh, he is, you know, you know, he's been working on trying to find a home for the last few months, so, you know, he's got a lead on that tonight. So we wish him all the luck in trying to get that home secured. <laughs> but Walking the Unnamed Path is a podcast dedicated to expanding on the teachings and techniques given to us by the ancestors of men who love men and laid out by our late brother and founder, Hyperion. We also touch on topics and ideas pertaining to queer pagan men on a daily basis. Now, how have you been, Chris? You know, it's been a little bit. Yeah, I've been great. Yeah, I guess I've just been really, really good. <laughs> I actually had my first acupuncture section, uh, session with a, a friend of mine who is a new practitioner and uh, mm-hmm. very healing. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was incredible to be able to spend time uh, focusing on my health, but also on my spirituality. Uh, and of course, my friend uh, is also a very spiritual person too, you know? So just kind of coming at the angle. It's been, uh, it's been great. I actually just feel amazing right now. I just had the session the other night. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. The, woohoo. <laughs> see, I, I've, I've, always been, I've always been a little interested in acupuncture, especially since you see a lot of those videos online where people are like uh, trying acupuncture for the first time. So oh, really? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I'm like, I don't know. It, I, I kind of want to try it, but I also have a thing about needles. So I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, but, anyway. <laughs> I mean, there are alternatives too. Uh, there's definitely there's acupuncture, but there's also moxibustion, which is essentially like a mugwort incense that you could like burn on the spot. There's also acupressure, mm. where you're actually just kind of applying pressure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the sky's the limit. You, you can even see images of people, like, essentially electrocuting themselves on those spots. <laughs> but, you know, I guess that's a little more on the, on the intense side of the spectrum a little bit. Yeah. And also, uh, my friend mentioned, too, like, you know, as an energy worker, you could also activate those points just by focusing in on them, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But um, I will say, though, like, I mean, I've always, I, I've had acupuncture before, and it's always felt very therapeutic in a self-pampering kind of a way, you know? But I think, I'm not sure if it's because of being post-initiation or just where I am in my life currently, mm-hmm. but um, the, yeah, the experience was definitely uh, very potent, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Even the different areas, like, uh, when they do insert the needles, you, like, you feel things. Things get released, you know? So mm-hmm. it's interesting what, what bubbles up, and then I guess if you're the type of person who's, I guess kind of become aware about uh, um, experiencing and uh, seeing those things, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I definitely recommend it, Michael. <laughs> Needles and all. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do, I do want to try it because, you know, I do, I, I actually am very interested in learning how to be a massage therapist. I don't know if mm. I'd want to do it as a career, but mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people tell me that, oh, you should definitely go into massage therapy because, like, I'll massage people or, like, one of my – what was it? One of my friends, I used to, like, rub her head, and mm-hmm. it was almost like she started to purr. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm good with my hands. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if the universe is telling you that, roll with it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, other than that, have what else has been going on with you, Chris? I know – Last time you were talking to us about how you are now the oh my gosh I'm <laughs> blank it was it was about, it was about it was about breastfeeding and everything I was like okay yeah yeah exactly but how, uh, how, how 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 else are you 
Oh, I'm great. Yeah. So I mentioned last week I'm a now a certified lactation consultant, which um, comes into play because I'm actually a nurse that works with babies. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also just really excited about the possibility of applying that knowledge to our queer uh, communities because many of our our um, queer like tribe, they're um, choosing family, right? They're choosing uh, to bring children mm-hmm. into their lives. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited about what this means. Uh, maybe what this means for the future. And also just putting myself out there as a resource for folks that are looking for uh, information or maybe if they're just looking for resources uh, for safe spaces to learn about breastfeeding, you know? Mm-hmm. So here I am. Yeah. <laughs> you can reach Chris yeah. at this telephone. Just kidding. Um. <laughs> Please call in with your questions, right? <laughs> That'd be a different podcast, and I think, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. How about you, Michael? How, how have you been with your busy life? <laughs> Uh, I feel like I've just been working a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to find time to, you know, actually enjoy life. I'm just, I'm getting, I'm so excited for Pride. It's coming up soon. I just want to, you know, we're going to take a little bit of a break from recording and I'm going to go enjoy Pride. Yes. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm also excited because I got news today. Uh, my youngest sibling, my youngest brother, uh, just got, um, what's the words I'm looking for? Uh, confirmation or, or he has the paperwork now. Uh, he got his name officially changed. Uh, oh, my wow. Youngest brother, my youngest brother is transgender. And yeah, he had his court date, I think it was today. And yeah, he, his name is officially changed. Oh, that's incredible. Congratulations yeah. to your brother. He he waited till a little bit later in the day to send out a message, like a group text, to all of our immediate family and a few extended family members. And I don't know if he's been doing it, but I've been, you know, mentally recording in my head who's been responding with, "Oh, congrats," and who hasn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I see. Well, I pray yeah. that the gods bless uh, this transition for him and this uh, acknowledgement, right? For, for his identity, and that uh, your brother's fortified uh, by those who do see him. Yeah. So congrats to your brother. Yeah. Blessings to him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, will, I will let him know. I, he's been getting all sorts of positive reactions online when he posted it finally. So oh, That's incredible. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. And, you know, it, you know, we always talk about, you know, pride and, you know, being proud of who we are. Let's kind of use that to lead into today's show. So our topic for today, when this, you know, we're recording right now and anyone who's listening live right now can hear, obviously, all the mistakes we're going to make that's going to be edited out. But uh, uh, when this episode (laughs) comes out, it should be close to the heart, close to the heart of Pride Month. Woo! You know, we will, of course, go back and edit so that everything sounds nice and whatnot. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we wanted to do, uh, you know, a special – we wanted to do something to mark this. Um, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riot. So, you know, we've, we've reached out to a friend who is who got to New York a few months after the riot. But, you know, obviously he's there in – while all that energy is still active, all the all the stuff going on, who, you know, we've asked him to come on and talk to us about that historic shift in our queer history. And 
for those who you know don't know what the Stonewall riots are, you know that's okay. You know some of you are young, and I guess some people just don't read books. Well, you know it's also it not just got so shady in here, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it is it's an important moment in history that is often left out of history books in school and just you know not told to people but i got i i wanted to try to word it myself and i was like no i'm just going to go find a good definition for it so here's a little history uh the stonewall riots were a series of spontaneous violent demonstrations by members of the queer community against a police raid that took place in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn in the Greenwich Village neighborhood in Manhattan, New York City. The riots are considered by many to be the point where the gay rights movement really started to pick up speed. There's a lot of our history that happens before Stonewall, and there's a lot of our history that happens after Stonewall. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people do consider it the, oh, this is where everything just started picking up speed, like, all the protests just started happening more and more after this point. So, Chris, would you like to introduce our special guest? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, I have, you know, I have the honor of uh, calling our guests my friends over the past um, several years, but Rich Wandell is our guest tonight, and uh, Rich Wandell is a well-known artist and stained glass designer. Uh, He is the high priest and co-leader of Polyhymnia, a Gardnerian coven founded in 1993 in New York City, a frequent workshop leader at neo-pagan festivals. He has recently begun to lead a weekly spirituality discussion at a New York City LGBT senior center. President of the New York Gay Activist Alliance, I'm sorry, he was in the 1970s. He is well-known activist, historian, and storyteller. Nationally known as an advocate for community history, Rich is the founding archivist of the New York LGBT Community Center's National History Archive. Uh, so please join me warmly in welcoming Rich Wandel to the show. Rich, welcome. Hey, uh, Chris okay. and Mike. Uh, good <laughs> offer to call you my friend. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yes, Rich is our friend. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Rich, first of all, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your, your knowledge and your um, experience and other things, you know, uh, your energy with us here tonight. So thank you so much for joining us for the show. It means a lot to us. Yes. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I am, uh, uh, although I was away from New York at, at the time of, uh, of the riots themselves, I am actually a New Yorker. New York uh, is where I was raised and, and is my, my hometown. So uh, I was away at, uh, at school, at a seminary at the time of the riots and came back a few months uh, after that. Uh, but uh, I, I uh, know many of the people who were there. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm also uh, an historian. Uh, and so I begin in that regard by noting that uh, if you really want to know the story of, of Stonewall, right. um, the, the book, the book is David Carter's book, Stonewall. There's more than one book with the title of Stonewall. Uh, look for the historian David Carter. It is both very well researched and also very well written. Uh, and, and a lot of my additional knowledge of it actually comes from, uh, from David. Uh, to me, the remarkable thing about Stonewall is how virtually every uh, segment of our communities were involved uh, with the riot. 
Uh, within the bar itself, it was primarily actually a, a middle class, a young middle class, uh, what later on we might refer to as a guppy bar. But it also uh, regularly had a, a handful uh, of uh, what in those days would have been called drag queens and also, uh, uh, say, half a handful of women were regularly in the bar and were in the bar that night. Um, the first arrest was of a woman who uh, uh, sort of gave the cops lip when they were uh, annoying her girlfriend. Uh, and they arrested her, and they, they took her out and pushed her into a squad car, uh, and she just got out the other side. This happened uh, more than once before they were managed to do her and keep her uh, in the car. But that, of course, ignited the crowd who were, who were drawing uh, close to the bar. So, the, so the, the rebellion has to do not only with those in the bar, but very much so with those on the street. Uh, uh, Christopher Street at that time, the bar is on Christopher Street. Um, was a cruising area. Uh, this, this is pre-app, right? So we, we hit the streets for, for picking people up. Uh, it, the people cruising uh, would have been a mixture of New Yorkers and out-of-towners. It would have been a mixture of, of young middle-class uh, men and also uh, many uh, street people who were either homeless or near homeless, um, both uh, both middle-class whites and also people of color. It was a really a real melange of the types of people that form our communities and all of whom uh, were important in, in what happened that night. And in addition to that, after, or it was three nights, after those nights itself, it quite possibly would not have gone any further were it not for the fact that people who knew how to organize and already were busy uh, mm. With the Mattachine Society that came before it, or with uh, 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 Craig Rodwell of the of the uh, Oscar Wilde uh, Memorial Bookstore, who was also on that street, et cetera. So it's a real combination of of people in, in our communities who who did this. Mm. That's incredible, Rich. You know, uh, in, in the intro, Michael touched on this. Uh, I uh, uh, he touched on a little bit of the history about uh, Stonewall kind of being this um, um, point. But it wasn't. It wasn't like the the movement uh, came out of nowhere, right? Uh, can you could you can you speak a little to like what the climate was, um, like where you what your experience was, but also what the climate was in the in the country in New York uh, and elsewhere. You know, uh, would you speak a little? Can you lay out what, um, the background of like the in what New York Stonewall at the came time, out? Uh, mm-hmm. there, there were of course a number of bars. Um, uh, both in the village and also various other places around town, who were accustomed to being uh, raided from time to time with the appropriate payoffs that would happen uh, as a result of that. And in fact, one of the reasons the people at the Stonewall were so annoyed, were so pissed, was that uh, it actually had been a, had been raided just about a week or so before. Uh, and so it was highly unusual. Why was this happening again so quickly? Not only that, but the standard for a raid would be the local precinct, first of all, it would be, and they would come in and they would, uh, uh, they, they might uh, uh, raid the cash register. They might even arrest uh, one or two of the people who worked there. They might give some hassle uh, to, uh, to drag queens if they were there. 
in the given bar, uh, and then leave. It was it was uh, it was just part of the game that was played. This was different. The stone wall itself um, was, uh, at most uh, bars at that time, was run by the syndicate, and apparently there was also a blackmail ring operating out of the stone wall. And so one of the reasons they went into the stone wall apparently was to attack uh, this blackmail uh, ring. Uh, but once they got in there, they had decided that this, and it was not the local precinct. It was not the local precinct that was doing it. It was an outside force. There's some indication that there may have been some federal involvement as well. Uh, and they determined this time they were going to destroy the bar. So they uh, smashed things up, uh, including the, the, the bar itself, as well as the uh, of the various uh, bottles and whatnot, and uh, sort to hassle and, and arrest a number of the patrons, all of which would have been unusual. This was an unusual raid. So between uh, the fact that uh, we had simply had enough, that this was a particularly virulent uh, raid, um, what happened was, as they began to do this, the crowd outside uh, got larger and larger. They, they were throwing uh, uh, pennies, actually, at the door uh, as weapons. Uh, the inspector, uh, Seymour Pine, was the name of the police inspector in charge of the raid. He, was, he, he got frightened, and he barricaded himself and his people uh, in, uh, in the bar, as a matter of fact, and, uh, because he was so afraid. And he continually tried to call the local precinct for help. They did not respond. They apparently, whatever internal was going on among the police department rivalries, they were not out to help him. Uh, and uh, ultimately, one of, the, one, of the, one of his people was a policewoman who was relatively small of stature. Uh, and she had been in the bar earlier, taking the point that sometimes you would send a plainclothes person in ahead of time to identify who were the employees and who were the, the patrons. Uh, and uh, she was small enough to crawl out of the bathroom window uh, and go get help for them. The first help actually that arrived uh, was the fire department uh, rather than the police department. Uh, the riots themselves, there was no injuries here, no injuries whatsoever. It was a defiance. It was uh, there. You, when you think of riots, especially uh, in the 70s and, and the, uh, the racial riots, uh, in, in, in the U.S., including New York, you think of burning cars and overturned cars and things of that nature and looting. None of that happened. It was simply a defiant, we're not leaving the streets, uh, kind of, and off, often with humor. humor. There's, there's the famous, you know, high-stepping, we are the Stonewall girls, we wear our hair in curls um, that went on. Um, and according to David Carter, the historian, he feels that a, a large part of why it was able to continue is actually because of the geographical nature of that section of New York City. It is not a simple grid mm -hmm. that wind around and come back, and it became very easy to defy the police, run away, and come up behind them even. Uh, so all of this was going on uh, at the time. Uh, and a marvelous night. Now, prior to that, there were existing in New York and elsewhere uh, gay organizations, uh, notably in New York, the, the Mattachine Society, which was uh, a quiet, uh, you would call them if you got arrested in a tea room and they'd get you a lawyer. 
You would call them if you're coming in from out of town and wanted to know where the bars were. Uh, but also quietly, they were meeting with the liberal mayor of New York to, to end uh, this, this kind of thing, to end this police harassment. And indeed, we're having quietly some success. The difference after Stonewall was that it was no longer time to do things quietly. Uh, mm. It was necessary for our politicians, liberal or otherwise, to say it out loud. Uh, and that became, uh, rightfully, that became an important uh, thing that had to be done. So although the Madison Society in New York, as elsewhere, there were also Madison Societies in Washington. Madison Society was founded originally by Harry Hay and others in, in California. Um, they, they they had done very good work for their time, but it was time now to be more open and to be more uh, uh, publicly pushing back, and that's what happened. Hmm. And um, how how long did this go on for? Like the actual three nights. Three nights. Four nights. Uh, okay. Right so um, I mean, just uh, you know, I wasn't there, <laughs> so just to get understanding. Um, actually, this was what year was this? Seventy nine? Uh, Sixty nine? Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, so people went home and they came back the, the following night. Is that what happened, or were right. there? And of course, people who were not at the bar or in that village that night came the following night or the night yes. after, as mm-hmm. word as word spread. There was not word. There was virtually no word of it in the uh, in in the straight press. All right, it was it was all but silent. There, there was. Uh, the Village Voice, which was a weekly, uh, came out with something. There were some what we referred to at the time as underground newspapers, notably one called The Rat, uh, which covered it. Uh, but you weren't going to find it in the New York Times, or, or, or you certainly were not going to find it on the TV news. Mm, I see. And on the following two nights, were, uh, was there also police presence? In, or, oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. The, what was known as the TPF, the Tactical Patrol Force, in their lovely baby blue helmet, uh, were were out and about, very definitely. Mm, and then afterwards, the organizing picked up space. Uh, the Madison Society had uh, had uh, what was called previously to this actually the uh, Madison Action uh, Group, uh, which was trying to do more active things through Madison, but it wasn't really quite it was really not quite the right fit. Uh, but they were already there with people like Martha Shelley and people like uh, uh, Marty Robinson and others. Uh, then very quickly afterwards, you had the founding of the Gay Liberation Front in uh, in New York City. And, uh, and then a number of months after that, the Gay Activist Alliance, which was founded in December of 1959. So it was just the whole, and, and also, uh, and the old, old line organizations also, which included the, the lesbian organization, Daughters of Belitis, were also kind of doing that same kind of quiet working, working together. And then they, they very quickly, uh, it was very quickly past their time to replace by the more activist organizations such as uh, GLF or GAA. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rich, you mentioned that uh, you were not in New York at the time. Like what, how did this news reach you and what did, what was it like to hear this, you know? You know, it's hard to remember exactly. Uh, it did not reach me through the media at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did not reach me until uh, I returned to New York City in uh, 
late summer of 1969. And actually, I was just coming out. And when I say coming out, I don't mean publicly. I mean to myself even, all right? Although I was oh. 24 years old already, which by today's standards, it's absurd not to know who you are until the age of 24, but would not be uncommon at that time period. Uh, and uh, so I was just coming out in that sense. And in the process of coming out, though, I, I very quickly knew that what was said about, about homosexuality wasn't me and therefore was not true. So I very quickly, uh, I, I wouldn't say without any upset, but very quickly went through that and knowing, I, knowing who I was. And damn it, I was not a hiding kind of person. And having reached that point, um, uh, I, I, I ran in, I think I ran into an organization, I ran into a GAA um, uh, demonstration by accident. I was still, the last uh, monastery I was in was in Union City, New Jersey, which is right across the river from New York. And I was living in Brooklyn. So I would go visit there. And then I would, on the way home, I would pass through the, the bus and train route, took me through Times Square over to a subway to get on to go to Brooklyn. And I ran into uh, a, a, a demonstration, which actually was a combination of the gay, uh, joint demonstration of the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance. And once I made contact with them, uh, I joined. It was clearly where I belonged to be, and, and I very quickly was publicly uh, out of the closet uh, and um, having a damn good time. It's <laughs> great. Feel free to share more about your good time, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was, you know, I mean, and people often, uh, when they talk to myself or, or other colleagues from that time, uh, they talk in terms of, you know, our being brave or this, that, or the other thing. And, and But the reality is, you know, when you're that age, and I was 24, and there were people younger and, or, and people slightly older than that doing this, and uh, you don't view it that way. You're just, you're just doing what comes natural. Mm-hmm. And it was exhilarating. To proclaim one still is to proclaim oneself uh, to to be who you are, even though it may cause uh, other difficulties, uh, as it certainly still does. Uh, uh, you know, you you and I, Chris, are here in New York City, and uh, and we we tend to get uh, uh, think that everything is just fine. But once you get out of New York, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, it it ain't necessarily so. You know, and we have to remember that. Uh, even prior to to uh, number forty five and all the current horrors, um, mm-hmm. it ain't necessarily so. But it's but it's nevertheless exhilarating and fun to loudly be who you are and to proclaim who you are. Um, I used to uh, uh, sometimes I would for many years uh, from time to time I would talk to somebody and uh, mention or they would know that I was totally out uh, at work and whatnot. And they would say to me something like, uh, well, you know, with your job, you can be, you're lucky. And I said, you have it reversed. I have the kind of job I'm at because I am out and because I would accept nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, hiding is a, is a terrible thing to do. And uh, obviously, it, sometimes it works terribly tragically. Uh, there, the, the number of uh, uh, transgender killings at the moment, for example, is, is to say the least terrible, mm-hmm. uh, as are older things such as Matthew Matthew Shepard or things of that nature. Um, so I don't want to be totally Pollyanna, but at the same time, 
being out is just such a better way to live. I think it's the only way to have a true spiritual life also. I mean, uh, this, this, this blog is also about your, your spiritual tradition. Uh, and spirituality is always about being who you are. And any kind of, uh, uh, you know, denial of that uh, is a denial of spirituality, is a blockage to spirituality. Indeed, the, 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 the problem with a fundamentalist of any type uh, is that they think they've got it all figured out and know exactly what to do and how to do it. And there's no exploration of who they are, while well, the true spirituality is, of course, the opposite uh, of that. Uh, again, no matter what tradition you, you're in, you can do this in any religious tradition, or including atheism, for that matter. Uh, but it's got to be that ongoing exploration. Otherwise, it's not spirituality. Uh, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Rich, you know, it's a common phrase now to say the first pride was a riot. And, you know, you having said you weren't there for the initial protests and whatnot, but you were there. For, were you in New York the following year when they actually had? Uh, I think it was it was the following year, right, where they had an actual like, yeah, parade absolutely. and celebration. I, I was at the 1970 uh, parade uh, or march. We certainly would not have called it a parade at, at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I was in the 1970 march. The so 1970 and and for the next few years. The march was planned by a, uh, a coalition of representatives from the various uh, 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 lesbian and gay organizations uh, in, in the city. Uh, and indeed, it was called the Christopher Street Liberation Day uh, Committee uh, that did that. Uh, and uh, important people of that, again, would, would have been certainly leaders of both GLF and GAA, but also Craig Rodwell and, and, and people like that. Uh, who put this all together. Now, that first year, 1970, uh, uh, that first commemorative march, uh, what we did was uh, we all met in Sheridan Square, which is uh, uh, in Greenwich Village, which is the square right next to where the Stonewall uh, in, at this point, closed, but where, where, where it was. Uh, and then we marched from there uptown to Central Park. Now, Central Park is, begins at 59th Street, so we're talking about a few miles uh, up, uh, up uh, uh, 6th Avenue at that point. Uh, and um, we did it without a permit. We just did it. And we seem to be a very small group. Uh, again, I'm participant. I'm by no means a leader at this point, but I'm participating in and uh, we began to walk down Christopher Street and, and then hang a left on, on 6th Avenue and on up to Central Park. Initially, we were on the sidewalk. Uh, as we marched along, the size, our size grew. People joined us. And uh, the next thing we knew, we were marching in the street, although we had no permit and there was traffic and, and everything else. And uh, by the time we got up to Central Park, we were on our way to a what was called the Sheep Meadow in Central Park, which is up a little rise. So you went up this little rise, and we turned around, and there was this enormous crowd there, so much bigger than what we had started with in Sheridan Square. Um, so it, it, was, it was a revelation to us. It was also we were enough people that the cops weren't going to bother us. So that first year, on a warm summer day in June, uh, the, the last Sunday of June, 
uh, we, uh, some of us, a small minority, of course, but nevertheless, some of us were comfortable enough to simply take all our clothes off, for that matter, and just create this this gray this this gay space in, in Central Park in in direct defiance of whatever the authorities might want to do to us. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that image with us. It's um, well, I I I've shared in the past uh, previous episodes that I I've been marching. Uh, in the Pride March uh, every year for the past, I think, 10, 10 12 years. And it, uh-huh. it's like, like um, it's been part of my uh, my personal journey, like coming out, getting closer and closer to the to the sidelines, right? And being afraid of being noticed or recognized, but then eventually making the commitment to march uh, and choose visibility. So it's incredible to hear about that first march. Thank you so much. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm just thinking about, um, like, e- even so even here in New York City, even growing up in New York City, um, like, it's not like the prejudice stopped all of a sudden, right? Or or, or it's not like it's not even ongoing today. So I wonder, like, where, where did it go from there? Was, was there a sense of a backlash or was there a sense of the city not knowing what to do? with all these queers in the street or yeah very very good question initially very quickly the the main group in new york city uh, switched in my opinion from the gay liberation front to the gay activist alliance who were who were busy uh, doing sit-ins and and uh, very loud nonviolent but loud and disruptive uh, actions uh, at various places around the city both the uh, government places and also uh, uh, private uh, 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 companies that were discriminating. Um, initially, I think the police kind of laughed. They thought we were funny, mm. right? Because that that would be their image of the fairy or the faggot, right? Uh, mm. But that very, very quickly changed to uh, being uh, uh, pushed around, uh, on occasion beaten up by the police, uh, and, and, of course, arrested. Um, that changed very quickly. Uh, but we had a we, we had a certain flair. We had an understanding uh, that, first of all, the, we had a strong understanding that the way to our liberation ultimately was coming out, was for large numbers of people to come out of the closet because we're in every family, and and we're known by everybody. And once you're out of the closet, uh, uh, it, it just it breaks down. The stereotype of you know the the uh, the sex predator lurking in the shadows or or whatever because people know you you know your brother your sister your parents says wait a minute that's not what he or she is actually like it, you know it shows that up but so our campaign to do that was multifaceted uh, if you wanted to get into the media which was important obviously and still is for any kind of demonstration uh, that you're trying to do. Um, you got a little clever. So we were, for example, uh, uh, doing a sit-in at an uh, employment agency that was discriminating. And uh, we would always, with any particular target, go talk to them first, not because we thought that it would work, but because it prevented them from them pretending, oh, if you had only spoken to us, it would have been all right. So we always did that first. And in the process of talking to this particular agency called Fidelifax, Employment Agency, uh, we, our people asked them, well, how do you know, how do you know if a person is gay that, you know, you're marking this on these applications? How do you know? And the response was, well, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it is a duck. So we had Marty Robinson show up in a duck costume. 
again, have that flair which gives you a better chance of getting into the media. At the same time, it was also a, a loud and boisterous, uh, disruptive sit-in at their offices, uh, leading to uh, leading to arrests, which was also much better chance of getting into the news if you had arrests. Uh, so we would do that. Uh, uh, but the whole focus was get people to come out. See, here we are. We're totally out of the closet, and we're not dead yet. You can do it, too. And it also became very important for us. At that point in time, usually confined to the, not all over the city, maybe just in the village area, but to indeed start walking hand in hand down, down uh, the street or kiss, kiss each other goodbye uh, at the subway or, or something we referred to as gender fuck which would be somebody possibly with a beard and mustache, but wearing a dress uh, mm. or something like that. And it was all, and still is, it's all about coming up. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. yeah, I, so I, I'm sorry, Mike, I know, I know we want to transition. I actually have one more question about, um, I guess, movements in general a little bit. Rich, you, you spoke about the work of the Machine Society and how they were like working quietly, right? And uh, other organizations as well that were uh, definitely doing great work, right? Things that, um, uh, yeah, amazing, very courageous work Mm -hmm. and um, working uh, behind the scenes, right? Working under the radar and even, and the thing is, it's, I guess what's interesting is part of that too is that the, the, the political leadership weren't oblivious to this community, right? They knew that we were here. They knew that, they, I mean, you could maybe even argue that they knew that we could become a threat, but then they were working with these uh, organizations so that um, they could uh, prevent a tragedy, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, well, the but, tragedy being them losing votes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I, so but when we started our demonstrations against individual politicians, we always attacked the liberals because at that time period, if you attract uh, attack the conservatives, you would just right. strengthen his base. So we would all hound, especially, for example, John Lindsay, uh, a very liberal, good mayor of New York City. We would hound John Lindsay mercilessly and then all go vote for him in November. <laughs> I see. It's interesting. I, I, I guess I, I kind of wonder, Rich, if like, you, especially your perspective as a historian, I know we, we, we see, we see um, different communities now even looking to build power, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then there's a lot of pushback sometimes, even within our own community, sure. about the, the methodology. I, I wonder, I, I'm not sure if, you know, I, I mean, you know, I, I wonder, um, do you feel that uh, the liberation movement could have happened uh, with the approach of the Machine Society eventually? If, if, if that precinct did not, you know what I mean? If they didn't ignite uh, this kind of like, uh, overt approach, you know? No, and that's because you need both a good cop and a bad cop. Mm. It couldn't happen without mm. them either. You need both mm. good cop and bad cop. The person in power always has to be able to pretend that it's not the demonstrations that are doing it, but because he talks to these reasonable people. All right? Mm. It's essential for them to have the ability to pretend that that's the case. So, uh, uh, the various uh, kinds of organizations we have now, uh, whether local or national, are all important. Now, there's a particular style in an organization that's more correct for me than another, all right? But that doesn't mean that the other shouldn't exist either. 
okay? Mm. Um, there is certainly an ongoing need, uh, to say the least, for a direct action on the ground, grassroots uh, movement all over the country, not only in, in the cities like New York, obviously, but all over the country. Uh, but at the same time, the people who are playing the lobby game and, or, or collecting money to elect uh, uh, relatively liberal uh, uh, politicians or whatever are also needed. It's not going to be uh, my style of organization, but it's an organization that needs to be there. Even um, the very the, the apparent corporate takeover of our pride marches, mm-hmm. uh, t- to my mind, uh, again, not my thing, not what I like to see in many ways, but it has its part also. So what is, what is, what is wrong here is not the presence of the corporations, but rather the lack of the direct action groups. You need both. Mm. You, you know, it's funny that you say that. Um, so this year is the first year that uh, Dallas Pride is going to be in June. It's always been in September. Um, and this year, it's going to be out of the neighborhood. It's not going to be mm. – the march is not going to happen on Cedar Springs Road it is actually going to take place at Fair Park here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who are like all for it and a lot of people who are against it. There's a group, there is a movement that says pride should be in the neighborhood. And, you know, there's various reasons that they're doing it. One, the, the reasons the city is telling us that they want us to do it in, um, Fair Park is the roads are under construction this year, are all around the neighborhood. All the roads are under construction, uh, and it's easier to uh, make sure people are protected. And it puts us all in a central location and whatnot. And then there's the other side that is saying, but you're basically putting us back in the closet. You're putting us in this spot that people can choose to go to. You're taking us out of the spot where we are out in people's face. But e- even being in the neighborhood, we're still in a closet, if you will. There is a well, group initial, here in Dallas. In New York, the, the, the initial parade idea, march idea, was specifically that we were leaving uh, the gay neighborhood. We, we assembled in the gay neighborhood and mm-hmm. then marched outside of it. And uh, a number of years later, uh, uh, as, as we grew also, it became important because politicians would say, well, you're all in Manhattan, which, of course, is never true. It became important to, to develop a pride march in, 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 uh, in the borough of Queens and later in Brooklyn, Staten Island, and the Bronx, uh, precisely to be not only in the neighborhood. Now, now that marching out of the village and into the rest of, of the city was reversed in, in the early 1980s and because from, from the point of view of business interests, they want us to come into the neighborhood where the bars are, where we'll, you know, bars and shops do and, and spend. Okay. But again, mm-hmm. um, you need both. You need, you certainly need not to confine yourselves or to allow the impression to continue that you're only in what the neighborhood you are in fact throughout the city and throughout Texas and throughout wherever. Uh, it's important that that be shown. 
Um, but on the other hand, there's legitimate reasons to have a celebration within your own town also, so uh, with your own neighborhood. Both are needed. We have to get away from the idea of the, the, that my way is the only right. We need mm, all. Yes. Uh, Yes, exactly. I, you know, I was, I was going to say, add on a little bit. You know, in response to Dallas having us in uh, Fair Park for the parade and whatnot, there's a group here called uh, Queer Bomb Dallas. It's a grassroots organization that has been very much vocal about, you know, they they aren't happy with you know the corporate sponsorship and whatnot of Pride and so forth and so on. They are actually sponsoring a parade that takes place in downtown Dallas and will march to Fair Park to get there in time for the additional parade, mm-hmm. that the, the official Fair Park parade. So they're trying to bring it together. And New York is doing the same out, thing. Out in the, face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the same thing is happening in New York. Yes. Yeah. Um, gosh, I've, I, I feel like there's, there's so many questions that we want to ask about. Uh, maybe your opinion about, um, or your opinion, but also your historical perspective on where the movement is now, and obviously with current practices. I, I do know that we wanted to kind of loop in your spirituality a little bit. If that's okay, we could segue back there and back. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think, Michael? I'm for that. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, Rich, you mentioned, uh, as you, we said in your intro, that you're the high priest and founder of a Wiccan coven here in New York City. And then you also mentioned that you were in a seminary uh, in the 70s, 60s, right? Uh, from I, I entered after high school, uh, which would have been in uh, 1963, and yeah. I was there until 1969. Okay. So I'm curious which uh, seminary you were at that had a Wiccan wing, or is this... Is there... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> a no, Wiccan department. Hardly. hardly. It, was, it was a Catholic... Yeah. Uh, it is a Catholic uh, religious order. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, do you mind sharing about your spiritual journey a little bit? Sure. Inter- interestingly enough, uh, w- when I tell the spiritual journey story, uh, starting with uh, Catholic school and entering a Catholic monastery and, and coming to the point of, of Wiccan uh, priest, uh, many people say, uh, wow, what a change. But of course it's not. It's quite the opposite. It's very much a... Uh, a steady ongoing uh, path, as a matter of fact, because you don't get uh, don't get caught up in in the labels or the institution, but into what's actually happening with your spirituality. So, so I was in a, a Catholic grammar school and a Catholic high school, and decided then that uh, the priesthood uh, was uh, was for me. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, certainly, consciously at the time, it had to do uh, with helping others and, and the importance of, oh, at that time I would have thought of it in terms of religion rather than probably than use the word spirituality. It occurred to me quite, uh, quite specifically in my mind that ultimately the only worthwhile goal in life uh, was to be a saint. And I still believe that. Now, my definition of what a saint might be is certainly different now than it was when I was in grammar school. But the basic idea that that's what matters um, is a consistent thing throughout throughout my life. Unconsciously, I'm sure, it also had to do with they have these vocation clubs and you go and they're usually run by the seminarians who are these handsome young men. I mean, so I'm sure that that on an unconscious level was there. I'm sure also 
there was some of the very, very false idea that it would be uh, that a celibate Catholic priesthood would be a way to avoid questions of sexuality, again, unconsciously. And of course, uh, going into a monastery is, is no way to avoid anything. It is quite the opposite. Any spiritual path is quite the opposite uh, to avoidance. Uh, so I, I spent my college years in, in this order, the Passionist Order. Uh, at that time, uh, it, it still is divided up into provinces around the world. And within the province I was in, the eastern province of the United States, we, we, we were sent off to a different one of their houses almost every year. So the schooling was, was split up that way so that we also got to know the whole congregation. Uh, and, and the houses they were in. So I was moving around the East Coast in my, in my college uh, uh, years. Ultimately, uh, a- after, after college, after um, novitiate, you, you take first temporary vows for three years. And then after three years, it's time for permanent vows. And at that stage of the game, they told me I couldn't. All right, They said no to me. I didn't know why. They never really explained themselves very well. Uh, but I talked them into letting me renew for one year. And then I went away with a few others to uh, this, this house we were renting in Philadelphia. And we were supposed to find a job and taste the real life or whatever the hell that was supposed to be. And I was there about a, about a month and, and I left. You can't fire me. I quit. Now, subsequent to that, because I am in contact with uh, my classmates from that time, two of whom uh, are, are still in the order uh, and therefore having gone up through the ranks have seen all the records. Um, and they let me know that indeed they were saying no to me because they recognized that I was gay actually before I did. It was another few months uh, after leaving the monastery that I realized uh, that I was, that I was gay. Uh, but but that 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 motion and indeed I am a priest all right that 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 from the days of grammar school is the path I wanted to take and indeed I have it's been it's amazingly consistent although certainly the mythology behind it has changed and is something better for me now than it was then but yeah it's very consistent with me and it is what's important to me you know, I mean I find I find Wic- I'm I'm Wiccan and of course this is not the only path in which what I'm about to say would be true, but I find the Wiccan path uh, to be very self-empowering. Our attitude uh, toward, uh, and this varies, I mean, there's nothing you can say about Wicca that absolutely every person in it would agree to, but keeping <laughs> that in mind, all right? Um, it, it is, uh, our, our attitude towards deity is not so much the slave as it is the partner. And we certainly recognize that whatever we see as deity or powers or whatever we want to call it is certainly one hell of a lot more powerful than I am. But it's okay. It's still a, a partnership. And indeed, in some of the Greek myths that I know, uh, you have you have mortals who defy the gods and for that reason uh, become immortal themselves. There there is built into the mythology the idea that uh, although it's a dangerous thing to do and don't do it lightly, it's okay to defy the gods. And so it's a very self-empowering viewpoint. And I just silence you totally. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can only silence me for so long, Rich, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying it's true for you from my experience of you. 
Well, you mentioned identity and uh, and spirituality and how they uh, are almost re- uh, like impossible to separate, right? This idea uh-huh. of spirituality. Uh, can you speak more to maybe your experience around that, but also maybe what what we you've seen um, amongst queer folk and uh, their interrelationship with their spirituality? Mm-hmm. Oh. The, the 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 queer folk and incidentally I do like the word queer. Not everybody does, but I but I I'm actually fond of that term because it literally means different. And damn it, don't don't insult me by calling me normal. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like, yeah, that's not the goal. I do not want to be normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's actually been somewhat of a revelation to me over the past. I think now it's about 15 years of going to the Between the World uh, mm-hmm. uh, Festival, uh, as I do in, in Ohio every, uh, every September. And the, being a New Yorker, it's very easy to have a, uh, an overly rosy view of the reality of gay people in this country, if you're you know, New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago. Uh, and I meet so many people uh, there, a large percentage of the people at that festival are from the Midwest, uh, and they've gone through, uh, and they're young, you know, they're 20-something, and, and they've gone through hellish times with family or in their town or in their small, in their small city, and of course, uh, initially internalized it all, of course, uh, and to see them wake up to themselves uh, well, not only because of Between the World Festival, but in part through Between the World Festival, and certainly through a, neo, a neo-pagan uh, viewpoint, uh, whether it's Wiccan or Greek or whatever, um, to, to see them come into themselves and to honor themselves, uh, not only in terms of who they like to screw with, but, but that, that whole other, it's hard to, hard to explain, constellation of feelings and events uh, and, and safety that you get uh, with other, in this case, all men, but would it be true of women also, uh, of, other, of other gay men? Um, we all know that there's still a tremendous difference uh, between being in a predominantly or all gay setting and one that's not, even though you may be out and all the other people in the room are accepting of you and whatnot, you know, there's no overt prejudice. It's a different thing. When you're among, there's a different amount of freedom, a different amount, and because there's freedom, an exploration and and discovery, never-ending discovery of who you are. And that is spirituality, whether whether you're like me, who ties that to mythology and deity, or whether you don't. Either way, it is a spiritual path, and that's what's important. Well, Michael, that actually reminds me a little about your your spiritual journey that, um, that you share with me. Um, I'm not sure if you want to share it now. I guess I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. And then I guess my own, too. Yeah, it's interesting. It it took me a hot second to realize what you were talking about because I was still focused. I was still trying to digest everything that uh, Rich <laughs> just said. I was like, what is he talking about? Oh, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. I think Rich has yeah, that effect no, on I, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I totally agree. You know, when I, when I joined the pagan community definitely you know everything that i was involved with was very you know it was it was heterocentric and everyone knew i was gay and no one had any issues with it you know i was fine but i still just did not feel like 
myself. You know, I was like, okay, I'm here, but I don't feel like there's a space for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then that led me into looking into uh, queer traditions, you know, like the now Fellowship of the Phoenix. At the time, it was the Brotherhood of the Phoenix or uh, Green Man Wicca or, you know, any of the other handful of queer male spiritualities out there. And then finding the unnamed path and being like, okay, this fit me. I feel like I found a spot here. And then finding finding space in between at between the worlds. It was definitely like, okay, this is a place that I feel like I fit perfectly. And and people sometimes find it strange that uh, I my my tradition is Gardnerian. I'm a Gardnerian mm-hmm. high priest, and and I've co-led a Gardnerian coven for some 25 or more years. Um, well. Um, part of, partially that's because people have a uh, have a false idea of how uh, how tight and all the same Gardnerians are, which is not true. And uh, the other part is, of course, because it is a uh, in the modern world, not always true, but in the modern world, uh, it is a mixture of gay, straight men, women. Uh, uh, a trans person would certainly be welcome in a in our in polyhymnia coven, although we never happen to have had such a person. Uh, they certainly would be welcome. Uh, we do have people who consider themselves non-binary, who are non-binary, I should say. Um, but it's a rich tradition for me, right? And it does allow me, as any tradition that you really get into that is not in its own way rigid, allows you to explore and, uh, and, and discover. Uh, and, that's what, and that's what it's about. But what's important to me now, and you know, also I, I'm, I'm at a point now. I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, well, as of as of yesterday, uh, 73 years old. Uh, um, happy birthday, Rich. <laughs> I'm not, happy birthday. I'm not, uh, I'm not so much going to the loud demonstrations uh, anymore. I don't even go to the Manhattan March anymore. It's too crowded. Makes me crazy. Mm. Um, so I have to say to my trouble one. You know, I'm not going to go hide in a, in a, in a hole somewhere or, or stop being an activist. So in what sense is it proper, uh, is it right for me at this stage in my life to be that, to be an activist? And, uh, and of course, this would vary from one person to another. I'm not saying all 73-year-olds should, should do it this way. Um, but for me, is as I look around uh, my own LGBT community, uh, which I see uh, largely, I mean, most of my life has been with an activist community, all right? Now I'm going a couple of times a week to a to an LGBT senior center. Um, and uh, we have our share of long-term activists there, but it is not an activist community as such. Uh, and, and I look around and what do I see? Well, I see a lot of prejudice, you know, against uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, racial prejudice Prejudice. We even have one or two people uh, who are, who are, are pro uh, uh, number forty-five, um, which is boggles the mind. But anyway, we do, um, and you do from time to time hear remarks that are anti-immigrant or or anti-person of color or anti-trans or anti-bi. Uh, um, and don't even go to poly anyway, right? Um, <laughs> so I think my job now, what's right for me is that I'm always opening my mouth uh, when, when these things happen, when these things are said. I'm not quiet. And I take, 
uh, uh, totally in cooperation with the people who run the center, of course, who are indeed activists themselves. Uh, but I, that's my, that's my part right now to say, no, that's not true. And that person, some person talks about, uh, uh, you know, immigrants getting on welfare, uh, undocumented people getting on welfare, which of course is not true. Or, or when they talk about, uh, 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 you know, some comment about trans not being real or whatever, all of that stuff, uh, I open my mouth and uh, seek ways and find ways to gently here and there push that a little bit to enlighten people uh, a little bit. The pro-45 people, you can't enlighten at all, but, but most people, it's ignorant. <laughs> it's ignorant for most people, okay? There, there are exceptions to that who are hopeless, but, but for most people, it's just they just need to hear the other side. And so more and more that, and, and indeed, the, my, my running a spirituality discussion at the senior center, well, I, I live in Queens. I live in not only in Queens, but uh, in Jackson Heights, which is reputed to be the most diverse place in the entire world. So coming to that spirituality discussion are, are you know, not only Catholic, Protestants, and Jews, but, but uh, uh, Muslims and Hindus and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, one woman with one Iranian Farsi person, as a matter of fact. It's very wide. It's very, very wide, and it gives me that opportunity uh, to talk about spirituality rather than rather than somebody's theology is right and therefore somebody else's is wrong. Rich, I think your comment about forty-five just lost us one listener. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh well, well <laughs> that's just life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, listener. Please come back when you're ready. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I've been holding that joke for a little bit, so I, I'm not <laughs> <laughs> So, Rich, so you're basically considered an elder of the queer community. You know, we have both. We have so few uh, people from that time when you first joined the community. Um, can you tell us? How is that for you to have so few with us today who were activists, who were you know, out there, who were basically the people who got the ball rolling? Of course, what you're indirectly talking about is the 1980s and, uh, and HIV just wiping out uh, just so many people, just uh, – uh, in around about 1982, 1983, uh, uh, literally the time between you found somebody had, as we were then calling it, AIDS, uh, and the time of their death was oftentimes a month or, or something like that. And uh, uh, people were uh, just dropping uh, all, all around us. Now, I was not particularly a club person, so there are certainly whole groups of people who had this far worse uh, than I did, all right? But uh, uh, but the reality is, in terms of the activists of that day, with uh, with a handful, maybe two handfuls of exceptions, uh, they're they're all gone, and uh, uh, and that's a little, to say the least, a little a little strange. Uh, I remember it was sort of a revelation the first time a number of years ago when one of our set died not from HIV. You know, it was like, oh, how strange is that. Um, uh, 
And that still stands as kind of a pall. Of course, now I, of course, like everybody else, I know a great many people uh, who are HIV positive, and and in the modern world, they they will still live a a long uh, a long life, uh, mm-hmm. which is obviously wonderful. Okay. Um, um, it's it's well, it's strange to be a person of the older generation. You become a member. You become consciously, at least for me. Consciously a member of the older generation when your parents die, <laughs> right? Oh, how strange is that? Then you are literally uh, the older generation. Of course, that's been true for me for a number of years now. Um, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. It is. It's strange. It, it is strange um, when people call you an elder in in any of in any but the formal sense of that word. There's a formal sense in Gardnerian where you're an elder, right? But in any other than that sense, it's, it's a very strange feeling because I, I've just been, you know, putting one foot in front of another, <laughs> you know, <laughs> doing um, uh, doing what was natural for me to do and no more than having a good time. Uh, obviously, not every day of my life has been, oh, wow, isn't it wonderful? That's not true for anybody. But uh, just putting one foot uh, in front of another. Uh, and having my losses, one person in particular for me uh, from HIV. Um, but um, I don't know. We just keep moving. I, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, I think you said it, Rich. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting what you say about this idea of uh, eldership kind of um, – just kind of happening, right? Uh, when maybe when with when your parents pass away, um, it, it, it's not the same thing. But I remember, like you know, um, there you know, I, I'm Korean, as everyone knows, and and there's many honorifics around age uh, in like Asian and Korean society. I remember the first time I was called an older brother by like a young kid, mm-hmm. and then um, immediately like there was a um, a role shift, you know, and it was almost like. Mm-hmm. Um, Expectations were different. Uh, my responsibilities changing incredibly, uh, and all that was placed on me, like by myself, really, or by the culture. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't anything that was enforced. But it was mm-hmm. almost a subtle, subtle, but definitely a real thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm. I guess like your your response to Michael's question thinks reminds me about that, but also makes you ponder like what kind of an older. Uh, will I be when I become one and, or mm-hmm. when, when it's put on me. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think also going back to um, the work that you can do, uh, you know, you mentioned you, you don't attend the, uh, the, uh, the March anymore in, in, in Manhattan, but uh, you do your, your, your piece by speaking up. Um, and I do the Queens March too, which is human size. <laughs> human size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, for folks that don't know, um, New York City is made up of five boroughs. Uh, so every weekend, uh, every Sunday in June is dedicated to one of the boroughs. And the last Sunday is always um, the uh, the main New York City or the Manhattan uh, Pride March. Um, so no matter what borough you live in, there'll be something going on, especially a month-long party. <laughs> yeah, um, and more so this year because of the 50th anniversary. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I, I wanted to put a name to what you're talking about, and I feel like um, we've spoken about it in previous episodes, but uh, you were 
um, taking on allyship in those moments. So I think that's uh, not to be diminished. I think that's something that we um, all may be called to have an opportunity to do. So thank you so much for taking those moments of allyship. I'm grateful for, that it's there for me to do. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. awful to to if you find yourself in a in a position where all of the good things in your life are in the past tense. That's terrible. <laughs> That's terrible. So it's a, it is it is a, a very very good thing for me that in whatever my small way is, I have the opportunity to be to be an ally. And also increasingly, uh, I mean, it's it's certainly emphasized by by current politics, but increasingly mm. it's so. I mean, I always believed it, but it's increasingly more gut level clear that it's all one thing. That that uh, 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 whether whether it's women's movement, whether it's whether it's questions of rape or or, or questions of choice, or whether it's people of color questions uh, or undocumented, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's all one thing. Yeah, I I'm I'm snapping to that, and you know, in my. <laughs> In my um, in my journey so far, as like in my community organizing, uh, and now Facebook um, commenting, <laughs> you know, and just day to day, just living as a queer person of color, I'm 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 realizing the truth of that too. Is like this idea that, um, I mean, isn't that a Martin Luther King um, a quote? Injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Um, right. And uh, I feel like the truth of that resonates through what what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, we're also curious to, sorry, I, you know, we're kind of talking ear off a little bit, or we want you to talk our ear off as much as possible. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, like, what, what has your experience been since, uh, since, um, ni- you know, 1969, or even that first March 1970, and um, how, how have you seen, like, newer members uh, stepping into the movement, maybe younger members, and perhaps like, I don't know, I, I wonder if you see like a, a maturing to the movement, or where where do you see the movement now? Do you feel like we are at a place where um, we are mature, or are we, are, are we still maturing? Are we still building power? Um, well, I think the movement constantly changes. I don't know if I like, uh, like the word matured. It, it implies that uh, it's, it's better now than it was to use, use that kind of terminology. Uh, it, is, it is certainly different. Different things are needed at different times. There are mm-hmm. certainly some obvious ways in which it's different. When, when uh, you know, immediately post Stonewall and for the several years thereafter, if you asked us about marriage, for example, uh, we probably would have said something like, "What? Is, that's an impress, oppressive institution. Why would we want to copy that?" Okay. Mm. And certainly, if you asked us about gays in the military, well, we were going down every other week into Washington to protest the Vietnam War. Okay. Interesting. Um, on the other hand, it is clear that uh, marriage uh, presents a whole host of uh, of entitlements and whatnot. In, in this society, and it's important, uh, and that gays in the military, uh, although this is a harder one for me to stomach, is 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 clearly just as if if one can go do it, then the other one can too. But it's just not an issue that I am likely to uh, 
put my energy into it. It's an issue I'm going to give a nod to and say, yes, that's right, but I'm not going to put my energy uh, there, especially in terms of the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, so, and, and of course, the whole corporate thing uh, that, that has been going on. Um, and we need these people as allies. All right. They're the uh, just as one minor example, uh, the the lesbian, gay, uh, uh, the LGBT community center here in New York is a very important institution that that assists and aids a whole host of people by the thousands uh, every week. It's an important institution, and of course, they get notable um, uh, corporate funding. Uh, they also get other kinds of funding, but they get notable corporate uh, funding. And uh, so I'm not going to rally, you know, against uh, corporates in that sense. At the same time, I am going to politically uh, uh, object to loudly uh, corporate control of, of, of life in general, you know. Um, so, so, yes, the, the, it's got to change. Uh, the movement has to change. Indeed, some of the things one is likely to like least, like uh, uh, log cabin Republicans or whatever, are in fact enabled because of how successful we were in, in changing the society. There's an inevitability to that. And it's also the reason why you, you can, it is continuously necessary to keep working, not only in, in the narrow view of, of you know, my particular group's rights, but the wider issues that are all that are all interconnected. Now, I can't, I can't equally uh, do them all, but I have to recognize and support them all. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, that reminds me of, um, like, some of the, the current things that we're seeing, even within our own community. We, we have our, our, our trans community members speaking up more about their visibility or rather their invisibility uh, that, that they've experienced in the past or POC as well. And you see it manifest in like new versions of the flag that have been um, popping up, um, mm-hmm. notably in Philadelphia, but also um, there's the one uh, from Portland, I believe, Oregon. Um, so I, I, can you speak a little to that about like where, what, what do you feel, where do you see that? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> in life, paradox yeah. is a very important thing to be comfortable with. I'll say that again. Paradox needs to be accepted and you need to be comfortable with. So, for example, there are those who would say, why are we having all of these flags? We should have the one we're all united. And you have the other that says, we're we're becoming invisible. We need the individual flags so as not to be invisible, so as to be equal partners in this movement. Well, they're both right. That's paradox. All right? Mm. And and uh, uh, in all things, philosophically too, uh, um, my 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 great uh, uh, friend and mentor uh, Arthur Evans, one of the founders of uh, of the Gay Activist Alliance, and uh, and the author, among other things, of uh, of Critique of Patriarchal Reason, um, which is an overtly philosophical, in a formal sense of the word, philosophical book. And he points out that, 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 I, that the idea that Western culture teaches us that you cannot be, have, have uh, uh, one thing and its opposite being there at the same time is not true. Paradox is a part of reality, and you need to embrace all of that 
at the same time and not make artificial divisions. I think that the, the movement over the past few years where, where, where trans people and, and non-binary persons are coming to their, to their own or, or, or becoming wonderfully loud is absolutely delicious. Absolutely a wonderful thing uh, to be happening. Because my experience has been um, when you get a group of, of LGBT people together and you present the proposition of either sexual preference or gender being a continuum and not an either or, everybody agrees. And then they instantly go back to talking about it as if it were. Mm. And, and we badly need that kind of shakeup. Um, uh, a few months ago at the, at the senior center, we, we had a visit from a, uh, a gay uh, youth group, and, and we started this, this afternoon of whatever we were doing with saying, well, everybody please go around, give us your name and your preferred pronoun. And when, when it came to me, I said, my name is Rich, and uh, well, I've, I've always used he and him, but I don't give a damn, you know? <laughs> It doesn't matter at, at, at all. And yes, it's difficult to remember uh, with certain people to, to use the singular they and them. And, and I'm certainly, by reason of habit, I, I screw that up from time to time. But it is a wonderful thing, and we need more of it. Thank you for that. You know, we're, you know, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, uh, Rich. Uh, do you have any closing comments or Anything you'd like to promote? Uh, uh, love and happiness all over the world. No. Um, <laughs> uh, it's probably too late for people who will hear this, but I am doing uh, uh, next week, the 29th of May, uh, at, the, uh, at the LGBT Community Center here in New York. Uh, we're partnering with the, uh, with the New York Philharmonic, and we're doing a, a, a short, at the center, a short musical piece but then primarily it is going to be a discussion uh, with the president of the New York Philharmonic, uh, Deborah Border, who is an out lesbian, and with the composer, John Corleano, uh, whose first symphony is dedicated to people with AIDS, and myself as a moderator. And, and we're going to be talking about art and activism. So I, I will be doing that. And um, World Pride this year, uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole host of other little things here and there that I'm doing just... Um, just because it's fun or whatever, you know. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, Rich, you're right. We, uh, it might be too late to, for the folks that are listening after it's been posted. But if, if you have the information, we'll be happy to post it to our uh, Facebook page. Uh, yes. if, if, if it's an event already, that'd be a great way to promote it. That sounds like an amazing event. Uh, yeah. We've been working on it actually for, um, uh, for a year and a half. Uh, they, they came to me. I'm now retired from the uh, center's archive, but they came to me while I was still there. Right. Mm. Uh, and then obviously through the other powers that be setting it, setting it all, uh, it all up. And it's because the Philharmonic this year, uh, they didn't realize it was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall when they first came. So, so that's kind of been mm-hmm. tagged on to it, but they didn't realize that at first uh, because they're doing a whole series this season. Uh, it's now the end of the season, but this season of uh, interacting with other groups and issues, including immigration, including women, and in this case, LGBT, uh, uh, and uh, and recognizing uh, the importance of doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm connected with the Philharmonic. My my paying job for a goodly number of years was archivist 
with the New York Philharmonic. So uh, I, I kind of know both institutions. And, you know, if, you know, after this is aired, you know, if anyone, you know, wishes to contact you, are you open to having people reach out to you, Rich? Sure. You can, uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook under the name Rich Wandel. Young people don't use Facebook, I don't think. <laughs> you, can, you can also contact me uh, at uh, rwandle at earthlink.net. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us tonight. Um, I'm just like, so much information. I'm looking forward to going back and editing and just listening to it all over again. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's fun. I enjoyed it. And, of course, we will... You know, Chris and I will both see you at Between the Worlds, so yep. there's that. We'll be there. forward to that. <laughs> awesome. And for folks that are listening, you can still register for Between the Worlds and meet Rich Wandel <laughs> in person in the rolling hills of Ohio. Just saying. Yep. <laughs> Come on up and say hi. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You can, so, you can, if you do that, you might even see me in drag in the Between the Worlds play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen him in drag. <laughs> Thank Pretty you good. so much, Rich. I think, um, I mean, I value you as a friend, obviously, but like, um, the, your storytelling is something that I think that um, universally in the community, I think is uh, in, invaluable. And I feel like, uh, I think we're blessed to have you. And I, I pray that you continue to tell stories as you go, you know? Uh, so you. please don't stop doing what you're doing. Uh, please keep doing what you're doing. And we're a stronger movement and a community for it. Blessings to you. Thank you. We hope you'll continue to walk this path with us. If you would like to get in touch with myself, Chris, or Chase, uh, you can email us at walkingdomainpath at gmail.com. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at walking underscore the UP. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash walkingdomainpath. <clears throat> and let's see. Uh, so thank you, Chris, for being with me on tonight's show. And, of course, again, thank you, Rich, for joining us on the show. <laughs> and we're going to close out with a song from Celia, uh, her song Red Alabaster and Blue from, that, from the album with the same name. And you can find all of her music at celiaonline.bandcamp.com. Until next time, look forward to talking to you all again. Thank you. Good night, everyone. There we go. Here's a young African American male. By the time he had drafted, he might be dead or live in jail. And he found his life of crime when they said no child left behind. He's an American too. She is 90 with dementia all alone. Well, her family couldn't take it, so they put her in that home, and now she withers down to bone. At night, she gently moans. She's an American, too. She is a young Hmong refugee. She's full with child. If her daddy finds out, he will go insanely wild. They say they understand her plight, call themselves the Christian light. She's an